It's August 28th, 2023. This is the best of Rook. Well, hi there. Welcome to episode 283 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam dustan aziz. Durut parshama. Hope you're doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Today's episode is part of a Best of Rook series we are bringing to you for the entire month of August, where we're looking back at some of our favorite interviews over the last three and a half years since we launched Rook and some of our most entertaining moments and we are giving them to you. We've curated our faves and we hope you check out these conversations, especially if you may have missed them the first time around. We're bringing you brand new episodes of Rook, starting with our season preview show next week on September 7th and then a big new edition of Rook on September 14th. That's coming up. But first... The Best of Rook continues today on the program. One of our favorite all-time guests on Rook, who's now been on a couple of times, and this was the first occasion we had him on. You know, if you have binge-watched the excellent Netflix series, How to Become a Tyrant, you will have likely become enamored of an interesting and idiosyncratic expert imparting profound ideas. That would be Dr. Fatali Mokadam an Iranian-American academic and writer who's become a popular voice in assessing the psychology of authoritarianism. We had him on a couple of years ago, the first time to find the answer to questions like, why do we gravitate towards dictators? Is the current world sliding back into authoritarianism? And is democracy ever even possible for Iran and Iranians? Today, we bring you that conversation with Dr. Fateli Mokadam, and I assure you that you will not be disappointed to hear his perspectives and sagacity. Plus, on this episode, we're going to give you one of our favorite funny moments from our Rook catalog, this one entitled Persians at Niagara, where we deconstruct the strange and disproportionate affection and attraction that Iranians in Canada seem to have with visiting the water wonder that is Niagara Falls. That's coming up. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Instagram, CastBox, Telegram. If you'd like to see your visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. And I mentioned Telegram. If you want your bulletins and descriptions in English and in Persian, you can subscribe to our Telegram channel. We would love your support through our Patreon page. Go to our website, rookmedia.com, and you can become a Rook member. Support us for a few dollars a month at our Patreon page. Just press the Support Us button on our website. That's at rookmedia.com. Hey, if you're a regular listener of what we do and you appreciate it, we would love to have you as a Rook member. All right, let's get started. Well, our feature guest today is an Iranian-British psychologist, an author, a professor of psychology, and the director of the Interdisciplinary Program in Cognitive Science 
at Georgetown University. Dr. Fatali Mokaddam was born in Iran, moved to England with his family when he was only eight. He received his formal education in England, and then he returned to Iran during the revolutionary period of 1979 to do academic work. Indeed, he was researching there during the hostage crisis in the early years of the Iran-Iraq war. Dr. Mokaddam, who'd done a lot of research in an experimental laboratory in England, suddenly found himself in the real-world laboratory of a radical revolution. In 1984, he moved back west and spent a period at McGill University in Montreal, where he did research on cultural diversity before joining Georgetown University in 1990. He has conducted experimental and field research in numerous cultural contexts and published extensively on radicalization, intergroup conflict, human rights, and the psychology of dictatorship and democracy. Dr. Mukaddam formulated the staircase to terrorism model, which has been extensively used in international research and practice. His books include The Psychology of Dictatorship, Threat to Democracy, The Psychology of Democracy, and Shakespeare and the Experimental Psychologist. And you may be familiar with him for his memorable appearances in the popular Netflix series, How to Become a Tyrant. Dr. Fatali Mokadem, join me from Washington, D.C. Here's our conversation. Hello, sir. Hello, and thank you very much. It's a pleasure and honor to be with you. Uh, it's it's a, a great pleasure to get to talk to you. I've been so looking forward to this, and I want to... I want to get into your story. I want to get into uh, what democracy means and what it can mean, not just for the world, but for Iran and Iranians. But I thought I would start on a macro level with something general um, to set the stage for us. One of your maxims that you often repeat, Fatali, is that all major societies began as dictatorships. Now, um, I'm in no position to contest that assertion, but I, I do want to ask why. Why has our first inclination uh, as a species forever been to gravitate towards dictatorship? Um, that's an excellent question to begin with. Um, uh, of course, it's major societies that we're talking about, and these major societies came uh, in the last few thousand years. Uh, the current period of uh, weather, the Holocene, uh, which lasts about uh, 11 and a half thousand years, the warming that allowed us to live in larger settlements, gradually begin farming and domestication of animals, and gradually to develop more complicated societies, which initially, if we look back uh, to the uh, Egyptian civilization to the Chinese civilization, and then later on to the Romans, uh, we see that um, dictatorship was common. That is, one person was given um, great power. And in fact, the, the word dictatorship has its roots in the Roman Republic and the Roman Constitution, where they decided that under times of very great stress, when society was in trouble, they would give uh, incredible power to one person, the dictator, who would get us out of trouble. Uh, but of course, they found that once they gave power to one person, they couldn't get it back. Uh, the one exception in all of this has been, of course, Athens about 2,500 years ago, where the roots of democracy began. 
other than that, in, in most major societies, we've lived in uh, dictatorships. And the key issue here is having a leader that you cannot question, you cannot contest. And I'm going to come back to that because that is so important in human uh, life. Being able to ask questions, being able to contest the leadership and living to tell the tale afterward. I'm going to ask you about the, the psychological appeal of authoritarianism, which you've, you've talked about and written about. But just, just one step back in terms of what you're saying, uh, and, and I'm sure there's no easy answer to this, but why do we gravitate that way? I mean, we sort of take it for granted. It's not illogical what you were saying. Yes, we, we pick one person, then that person becomes a dictator. But why? Why wasn't the natural instinct psychologically to say hey let's the the ten of us work together yes. To, yes. to see how we fix this thing absolutely and in hunter-gathering societies uh, there was shared leadership there was leadership by women more in some areas uh, so it's much more flexible and you're absolutely right we need not have taken this path we have a lot of evidence that collective decision is uh, the norm for many animal groups and in some primitive societies in human groups. What happens is that once there is a surplus in society and once ownership and inheritance and inequalities arise, then the ground is laid for strong centralized leadership. And that strong centralized leadership becomes even more important when groups begin to attack one another because there is something to gain. Uh, there is a surplus that they can try to capture. Uh, when we were hunter-gatherers, there wasn't much use in attacking other groups because they didn't have much we could, we could accumulate. Uh, we could enslave them, but we couldn't do much else. Uh, but once a surplus arose and some societies became quite wealthy, then there was motivation to attack them right. and take over their wealth. And that's where leadership and particularly aggressive leadership, leadership can, that can defend us, that arises. And of course, once leadership arises, you get stratification and inequalities and ownership and inheritance these become prominent so that's a that's a perfect segue though because even with leadership um there is a way to have or accomplish leadership um with collective consent right uh, uh, uh whereas you've talked about the psychological appeal of authoritarianism if you can break that down for in um layperson's terms for yes. me and our audience, what, what is the simple appeal of wanting what we would think, it's counterintuitive, we would think we don't want authoritarianism. What is the appeal yes. of it? Yes, uh, the, uh, wonderful question. And of course, um, a number of very important books have been written on this. Uh, one of them, which I first read in Farsi actually, is Escape from Freedom. Uh, Fromm's book, Escape from Freedom, he believed that in the modern world, because the uh, the traditional relationships of family 
and uh, community have been broken, we have become very anxious and uh, we are anxiety ridden in our modern societies and we we are worried when we have this freedom because we don't have the connections to root us and his idea was that we we have a tendency to escape freedom and go into the uh, under the umbrella of the great dictators um, i think from was was correct in many ways but i think in some ways, he doesn't capture 21st century strongmen. When you look at the current situation, I believe it's different. I would make a distinction between two types of freedom. One type of freedom is uh, individualistic, where we have freedom of expression, freedom to move, uh, freedom as individuals to make choices, etc. And we try to actualize ourselves, to optimize ourselves through individual freedom. But the kind of freedom that the strong man offers us is very different. The strong man offers us freedom through the group. It is through the power and glorification of the group. It is making America great again oh, and right. being part of that. Right. It is the Third Reich, which will last a thousand years and the glory of that. So the strong man encourages us to join a movement, join a group, become part of something greater. And of course, it is only the strong man who can lead us. Only he can save us. Let me, I'll come back to the 21st century uh, element. Uh, and But if I understand you correctly, um, again, it, it seems counterintuitive. You're saying that, I mean, part and parcel of this would be that we don't necessarily, in terms of the appeal, we don't necessarily think that the authoritarian or the dictator is going to be a threat to us. We think it's the, that, in fact, it's the opposite. They're creating a safety. Um, uh, Colonel Gaddafi is going to be my hero who's going to protect me somehow, and, but be a threat to others. This is if I'm in Libya in uh, the 1980s or, and I'm buying into that, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. And also, of course, the authoritarian strongman knows that threat is the key. That is why they continually focus on threats. We are going to be attacked. We are being invaded. These Mexicans, these Muslims, these others, they are invading us. And of course, in the Middle East, America is the bogeyman. Israel is the bogeyman. You know, they are attacking. They are invading us. They're taking over our goods. And I am going to protect you. Right. It occurs to me that, uh, just parenthetically, that even when we know, I mean, even if we can be a, a, a good student of history and look at these figures and say, um, that was that was bad, that was wrong, that was horrible what happened, that was an atrocity, we remain fascinated by authoritarians, by dictators, by tyrants. We're, we're almost drawn to them, even after we yes. know all about the atrocities they've presided over. I mean, isn't the interest and success of the Netflix series that, that you star in, uh, the recent series, evidence of that? Why are we so keen on hearing about them? That's excellent. I think you're pinpointing a key characteristic of human nature 
the appeal of authoritarianism is not limited to a specific time. It is timeless. And this is what continues. This is what continues to work even in so-called democracies such as the United States. See, what Trump brought to light, and this was a great surprise to many liberals, because they couldn't believe that in an enlightened country such as the United States, there would be 70-odd million people voting for Trump after what he had done, after he had suggested that we inject ourselves with Lysol. Right. This was amazing to them because they couldn't understand how is it that we are being drawn, we are attracted to this man who is ignorant, who is anti-science, who seems to only appeal to our darker nature. And this is exactly the point I want to make, that the appeal of authoritarianism is not new, it is not past, it is forever. It is forever. This is part of our relationship with leadership. We have evolved in societies that were almost always led by strongmen. And most of our history has been under dictatorship. We broke out of that momentarily in Athens 2,500 years ago. That collapsed. We came out of that briefly in some other societies, and we are now in a dangerous situation because the rise of dictatorship is global. Right. So it's not it's not limited to I was this is my next question for you was going to be there. I mean, there is a a general orthodoxy these days amongst, say, political pundits to suggest the world is sliding or maybe regressing back into authoritarianism, not only when we speak of, say, China and Russia, but in the in the West as well. So you believe that to be true? I believe it is true. And if we look at the objective evidence provided by various groups like um, journalists without borders, these groups are providing evidence for us that there is a backsliding here, that democracy is in trouble in Europe, in the United States, in a number of other countries that we usually think of as democratic or more democratic. Now, the question is, why is this? And I believe we have to go back to perceptions of threat. People are seeing themselves under attack in different ways. They feel threatened. This is partly to do with globalization and the massive movement of populations around the world. Let's take the case of uh, refugees from the Middle East going to Europe. Right. What we saw was that as refugees from Syria, Iraq, other countries, and of course Iran, as they left and went to Europe, anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, anti-outsider sentiment increased, and there was the rise of right-wing nationalism. This perception that we are being invaded, that our religion, our culture, our traditions are under attack. And this is exactly the situation in the United States, where you have this right-wing radical surge against outsiders, in a country of immigrants. It, it particularly gets uh, 
animated or amplified if there's an economic downturn, right? People are people are doing without, and they're looking for someone to blame, and um, and so uh, <laughs> the immigrants uh, will be an easy target. Absolutely. In, in psychology, we have a lot of research supporting the idea that frustration can, under certain conditions, lead to aggression. Uh, this was one of uh, Freud's great insights that has been experimentally uh, supported. And of course, the aggression is against others who are dissimilar to us. Right. But, but you know, back to the appeal of the authoritarian. And, and I mean, we do have, in a way, Trump is a gift because it's a contemporary example that we, you know, I mean, we know people and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm careful to say that I, there are people who are listening right now who won't agree that that Trump is his strongman uh, character was a bad thing uh, or is a bad thing. And the, um, there are supporters, in other words. But that's kind of the point I want to make, which is that for a lot of people who support someone like Trump, if we use him as an example, maybe this is the case with Putin or other leaders of that type. And I know them because some of them are my extended family. You know, yes. they they're pretty transparent about him being a strong man. In other words, they're not necessarily saying, "Oh, he's not authoritarian." They like that about him. They say yes. he's strong. He makes decisions. He's decisive. He puts people in their place. So that appeal is quite vibrant. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. And um, the problem with that is that uh, the Trump types will create a society which is anti-science, which is anti-fact, which in general is not going to allow critical questioning the way it should be. If we think back to what is the key, what is perhaps the most important difference between a more open democratic society and a more dictatorial closed society. For me, the key difference, the starting point, is the ability of citizens to question and criticize the authorities. Hmm. When you can't question and criticize the authorities, as you can't in many countries right now, what happens is the authorities become corrupt and increasingly so and that's why in countries like iran unfortunately we have huge very high levels of corruption right now because the authorities will not be questioned they know they're safe if they steal if they rob they can't be questioned hmm. so this is the key difference and uh, the authoritarian dictator unfortunately has this characteristic that as soon as he, and it's always a he, unfortunately, it's not women, uh, as soon as he comes into power, you get the family, you get the friends, you get the cronies right. around the regime, and despotism becomes more and more corrupt. But it is the argument that the Trump supporters would make to say, uh, this is how it, it was not an authoritarian regime. You could, Dr. Fatali Moradam can go uh, on television and say whatever he wants. That wouldn't be true in a true dictatorship. So how do we respond to that? Uh, well, uh, we respond to that by pointing out that uh, 
Trump never got the power to shut down your program or other similar programs. If he had the power, I am absolutely sure he would shut them down. Uh, he has, in terms of personality characteristics, he has all the requirements, all the characteristics of a dictator. Um, these characteristics are well known if you study dictators like Putin, Erdogan, and these kinds of people, uh, Khamenei. They have uh, used the front of democracy. They, they enforce elections. They construct all kinds of fabricated, uh, very complicated systems to put the front of elections up in democracy. But in the end, they make the decisions. Hmm. And so uh, they can't be questioned. They can't be uh, uh, criticized. Um, there's a very simple test for democracy in addition to criticism. Um, I would call it the town square test. The town square test is very simple. Can you go to your local town square, stand up and make a speech against the leader and not be arrested or attacked or killed. Well, yes, you can do that in the United States at the moment, uh, but in many countries you can't, right. including Russia, including Iran, including uh, many other dictatorships. So you mentioned Iran and Khamenei. Let, let's, let me get into that uh, and get into your story as well. But first, I mean, just to situate it, where does the Iran of today fit in? I mean, it almost seems like an absurd question given what we've seen over the last uh, few decades in Iran. But is it what you would traditionally deem to be an authoritarian society, a dictatorship? Absolutely. Iran is a dictatorship. And unfortunately, uh, because religion is being used to enforce and support that dictatorship, there is an additional layer of corruption, and that is a moral corruption. Uh, you have quite a few of the ulama, of the, of the mullahs, who oppose this regime in prison, and, and they've been dealt with that way. And unfortunately, the more democratic characteristics of Shia Islam, which have always helped the people, are also being crushed. Uh, let me give you some examples. In Shia Islam, uh, of course, Muslims are free to choose their marja'at-taqlid, the source of emulation, and they can pay their Islamic taxes, khums zakat to any uh, person they wish. They have this freedom to choose. And traditionally, this was a way in which particular mullahs became powerful and could act against authoritarian rule. Mm. Uh, for example, Sistani is still very powerful and outside the orbit of Qom. And one way he's, he's powerful is through Qom's zakat, the Islamic taxes being paid to him. Right. Now, this is uh, the root of a democratic system. You have people choosing who they want to become more powerful by paying them their taxes. But of course, in the current Iranian system, uh, the political mullahs like Khamenei have taken over, have usurped the traditional Shia Islam system of promotion, and they have squashed whatever democratic tendencies there were. 
so the, the unfortunately this has really crushed what could have become uh, a thriving uh, pro-democracy movement within Islam itself, within Shiite Islam in Iran. It could have been part of our reformation. Meaning that uh, Islam is not necessarily antithetical to democracy? I believe there are elements of Shiite Islam, I'm not talking about Sunni Islam, Shiite Islam that are pro-democracy, but they have to be nurtured by the right kinds of people and unfortunately, in Iran, we don't have those people at the moment in power. You were born in Iran. You grew up on, yes. there until you were eight years old, and your family moved to England. What, um, Fatsali, what are, what are your earliest memories of Iran? Are they fond ones? Uh, yes, of course. Most of us have childhood memories that are very fond. And um, I, in, in 79, I rushed back to Iran because of my... Uh, fond memories and also my desire to try to be part of a democratic movement in Iran. I drove overland from England to Iran and when I was driving, I remember there were many of us returning from the West to Iran, very hopeful, euphoric in some ways. And when I arrived, it was a, a, a spectacular experience that opening of 79, when Evan Prison was opened, when uh, we had freedom. And I started teaching immediately in universities. You're talking and, about uh, the first few months post the, yes. the, the uh, exile of the Shah and, the, and where things certainly hadn't, uh, this is pre the co-opting of the revolution by the, the, former, the Islamic colonists. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, and the universities were, were opened up and women were free to participate fully in activities. They were not forced to have the hijab. Those first six, nine months were euphoric. It was exhilarating. It was fantastic. But and sorry, very sorry, soon hang on a the clampdown came. Before you get to that, so you're a kid. So you go to England and you do your university. And uh, I, I'm just curious about, so, I mean, you've even at that point, you've spent most of your life in the UK by the time of the revolution. Uh but you you see this as a chance to go back to the homeland and and do good. Is that what? Tell me about the the emotions that you had that would lead you to return in 1979. Well, the the emotions were excitement, um, really feeling inspired by the revolution, uh, but also ignorant and. Um, uh, ignorant of the true conditions and what was going to happen. I trained as a psychologist doing experimental work. And when I returned to Iran and started teaching in university, it was there that I started to learn real psychology. Hmm. I, I would say that the laboratory of the revolution taught me so much more than I had ever learned in any classroom. And what did it, how did this proximity to revolution, everything from deposing a monarchy to then the hostage crisis to that co-opting of power I spoke of by the Islamic formalists, then the war with Iraq, how, how did that inform your perspective on the psychology of humans vis-a-vis -vis building a society and any prospect of democracy? Well, first of all, what it taught me is that collective behavior is much more in, important than individual behavior. 
See, in Western psychology, we focus on individuals. All my training was about taking individuals into laboratories and studying them. In Iran, I learned that, no, it's the collective that matters first. And the collective can overpower the individual. Hmm. Uh, let me give you an example of our recent experiences with the pandemic. You remember that at the beginning of the pandemic, the shops ran out of certain goods, toilet paper <laughs> yes. and all kinds of things, yes. right? Yes. I remember talking with my neighbors and each of us saying, oh, it's so illogical how you know people are doing this. Yes. What does the In, pandemic have to do with toilet paper? I remember yes. that. Yes. Individually, we can all agree that we did illogical things, but we were pushed by the collective. <laughs> we were overpowered. Right. And there's a lot of psychological research by Solomon Ash and many others that shows that the majority, the power of the collective can overpower the logical individual. And that's what happened in Iran. Individually, Iranians could rationalize and think democratically, but collectively what happened was there was a push, particularly by the radicals, to go back to authoritarian ways, and that's what won out. But that's what isn't won that out. evidence of of the opposite? I mean, that the collective was broken? I mean, uh, you know, in the end, it wasn't what the majority wanted, right? It was, uh, so isn't that evidence that a smaller collective within the larger collective uh, took things over? Yes, but at the same time, it shows that the larger collective did not have the skills necessary mm. to maintain an open society. And those skills come with practice, with experience. However, the radical elements, the fundamentalists who wanted to bring about a dictatorship, they brought about changes that ended the possibility of people learning Right. how to behave democratically. Right. Let me come back to that, because that's that's where I want to end off, and it's, it's really important. It's at the crux of what I want to talk to you about. But, but just reflect, if you can, on those five years from 79 to 84 when you were in Iran. Was this a... I mean, I would guess that you, this was... A downward spiral of sorts for you if you if you arrived with the excitement of thinking this was going to be the new democratic nirvana or people power etc did it cause you to be jaded was it a, a loss of innocence somehow i'm not sure i became jaded i would say i became much better informed about human beings and their behavior, much better informed than if I just stayed doing laboratory research. Also, I became much more focused on long-term changes. Hmm. See, again, Western psychology, most of my studies in Western psychology are one-hour experiments. They're not about long-term processes. So one of the things we have to do to understand ourselves in places like Iran is to look at long-term processes. Hmm. I certainly became uh, much more realistic and, if you like, pessimistic in terms of what the prospects are 
for achieving an right. open right. Uh, society that is less based on corruption. Now, we, we have to come back to this issue of openness and questioning. See, that the, the challenge in Iran after the revolution was that the fundamentalists who took power, they were strong in religious belief. It's the same when you look at 1917 and the Russian Revolution, when Lenin, Stalin, and these people came in, they were not religious, but they had their own religion of mm -hmm. Marxism mm -hmm. and this blind faith to Marxism. Whenever you have a group blindly adhering to a system and unquestioningly following that system, you're going to have a breakdown of democracy. You're going to have closed society. And unfortunately, this is going on in a number of places in the world. Are you always, were you always this measured though? I mean, was there not a moment where you just sort of went, oh my God, and, and were heartbroken or broke down? Oh yes, I, I was certainly heartbroken to have to leave. Well, why did you leave? Well, I left because, uh, believe me, I worked harder in Iran than I've ever worked in my life. I mean, if you look at my publication rate in, in the West, I am a high producer. Yeah. I have published a lot and achieved a lot, but I've never worked as hard as I worked in Iran, but I did not produce anything. And in the end, I realized uh, I was not going to get very far trying to influence things. Hmm. And so I left because I found that my opportunities for influencing life were very, very limited. In the end, I even had to resign from university because I realized I couldn't work within that university system. So that, that it was very sad for me to leave because I, uh, you know, I had my mother was alive and living at that time in Iran, and I knew I would not see her often. So it was tragic personally to have to leave. But when when you say you weren't able to produce anything, do you mean you mean write? What 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 were you not able to do? Well, the, publishing was very difficult. Um, if you were trying to publish something progressive. Oh, yes. So that, that was part of the problem. Mm. Um, and of course, if you're an academic, you want to influence things through teaching, and I couldn't teach anymore, and publishing, and I couldn't publish what I wanted. So that's really why I left, and it, I was heartbroken in that sense. So back to the town square, you were not able to go stand in the town square and say what you want. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and that's a very difficult situation when uh, that is your mission in life. Yeah, yeah. And, and the reason you've returned to your, your home country. Um, yes, exactly. It's as if they said to you, uh, you're not going to be able to go on air anymore. Right. Well, that would lead you to re-question your life and where you are. You've come back to the West. You you spent, uh, I mean, you spent the last few decades as a prominent academic in a prominent institution in the capital of the United States. How how has your dual identity, East and West, the the nexus that is Fatali Mogadam, affected how you see the world? 
well, it's it's affected how I see the world in that um, I see continuity in human behavior across time and across cultures. You know, we're in a multicultural era and everybody likes to celebrate differences. But for me, the key characteristic of human beings is their commonalities and their continuity across time. Uh, and one of these continuities happens to be leadership. Leadership is a key characteristic of all human societies. And in many societies, the leader that is governing is a leader for life. In China, leader for life. In Iran, leader for life. We have a constitution in Iran where the Marja Tahlid is, is the, the main person you are supposed to follow, is separate from the um, supreme leader, but the supreme leader is there for life. And in other societies such as Turkey, uh, such as Russia, they still have a sort of constitution, but uh, the leaders uh, arrange it so that in every, in every election they win. So we have lots of leaders for life. So for me, being an Iranian, living in America, having grown up most of my life in, in, in England, the key theme is continuity of human characteristics across time, across societies. We're essentially the same creatures and we, we repeat the same patterns of behavior see, see, I, I I love that um, because it's because I think that's the, the, an important part for example of an anti-racist message is saying at the end of the day you know the continuity continuity of human characteristics I, I appreciate that I preach that uh, but I but for the sake of this conversation <laughs> I mean you know there are people who will say uh, and and we'll we'll say this with some some cause. I mean, we'll say, Masalan, uh, like the the people of the Middle East do not know how to work together, the yes. way the way the Swedish people do, um, yes. or the Canadians. So, uh, so how do we marry that to the the continuity of human characteristics? Well, it's a great question. I would ask you to think about the Iranians who are living abroad right now in America, in Europe, in other places. I'm sure you know, and I know, uh, many Iranians who collaborate in excellent ways with others. They do group projects. Uh, I know them in research. I know them in industry. Uh, these people, if they were in Iran, they would not be able to do that. So what is it about is it the person or the context? Mm -hmm. I would argue place Iranians in a context where they are supported to be collaborative, to do group work. They become different creatures. What has happened in Iran and a number of other societies is leadership and particularly dictatorial leadership has created a context where there is distrust between individuals where individuals cannot cooperate with each other and cannot be productive. Right, right. 
Uh, but I, but I, I'll generally push back. I, I say this with some sadness. Yes, of course, I know some people who work in collectives, et cetera, who are Iranian. But for the most part, I feel like we've migrated a lot of those tendencies. Uh, I mean, if they're not in our DNA, then then we've then we haven't they haven't elapsed in us from the Iranian experience because I do see that mistrust in our community. I do see uh, sectarianism in our community. I do see the inability to to get along because we're always looking over our shoulder. What does that guy want? You know, all of the things that. Yes. I mean, so how do we explain that? There is some of that within Iranian groups, but you look at those Iranian individuals at their work. See, I, I know some scientists, for example, Iranian scientists in places like the NIH and other places mm-hmm. where they're incredibly productive and they don't have any of these characteristics of suspicious, you know, being constantly wary of others. See, when groups of Iranians gather, they reformulate, reconstruct what they had in Iran. They're bringing over part of that culture. But as individuals, when we are put in a different context, we behave differently. So my, my point is that the Iranian context needs to change and it needs a different type of leadership to change it. It's so interesting, too, that um, having trouble uh, with the collective or that dis- mistrust, for example, doesn't um, like the, the, there's that. And on the other hand, they're the they or we the Iranians are the kindest people that you will find They're 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 incredibly giving, for example. I mean, there's it. I guess the, the upshot is that humans are complex, but but yes, but it, yes. but it, you know you it, it isn't like the the fact that we might have trouble doing democracy means that I that the, the suggestion would be that everyone's a bad person. It's just um, it's just very hard to organize um, in, in and amongst Iranians, and I feel like in a society like Iran, having listened to you your lectures and your your work, that has been so colored by dictatorship and authoritarianism, not just in the current context, but yes. through, through the generations, you know, back, back, yes. back, um, before the current one. I, I mean, is it realistic to think that some kind of democracy can even be achieved within a few generations? I believe it's realistic to think that we can move stepwise towards a more open society. We have to remember that uh, at the moment there are no what I call actualized or fully developed democracies. What does Look that mean? United- Explain what that means. Uh, actualized democracy means a society where every individual is capable of participating in decision making in a maximum way and it's an ideal situation where everyone has a say and their interests are taken into account. Mm. We don't have that yet. Not in the United States, not even in places like Sweden. However, we have to think of the goal which is to stepwise move closer to an open society And this begins by beginning to ask questions and to have the right to ask questions of authorities. That is the very basic step. 
the right the right to ask questions from authorities. Unfortunately, in some societies, that right does not exist, because if you question the supreme leader or whoever it is, uh, you're in trouble. Right. And of course, if it's a religious system, then questioning the supreme leader means you're questioning God, and that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So we have to go beyond this step, and the first very simple move is to open up questioning. I'm optimistic in the sense that uh, if you look at individual Iranians, there's nothing in their DNA, there's nothing biological, there is nothing set in them that prevents them being productive, democratic, etc. Look at their behavior in institutions in the United States. They are thriving, they are doing brilliantly, and they are productive in ways they could not be in Iran. And the difference is the context. It's the same person. I'm the same person who worked really, really hard in Iran from 79 to 84 and produced nothing. I'm the same person. Yet in this context, I can be highly productive. Why? Because the context allows me. The context supports me. I assume that's to say that you wouldn't go back to, to work in Iran. Uh, well, um, I would love to go back to work in Iran if, if the situation changed. Right. Uh, but I don't think the regime would want me back, and uh, I don't think I would be productive there in, in the current conditions. So just when you say even Western countries have not achieved actualized democracy, um, so, so is there any example in the world that we can look at, or has there ever been that is a, uh, to steal the American terminology, a shining beacon of democracy? Well, there, there isn't yet, but we have the technology to move forward uh, to much greater participation by people in decision-making. Let me give you an example. In, in public planning, city design, in Europe, uh, in the UK, I know, uh, people are given opportunities to give their comments when they want to build a road, when they want to change part of the city, and people can contribute a great deal. We could do the same thing. We have the technology, we have the electronics. Do we want to invade Afghanistan? Hmm. Do we want to invade Iraq? Well, we could have mass participation in this kind of decision-making. We need not leave it to one leader. And of course, we know that in most cases, the, these leaders have been making terrible decisions, terrible decisions. So we have the technology. What we need is the willpower to change the current situation. And of course, uh, one of the things we need to do is to change our uh, education system. We need better civic education. Uh, there are lots of people coming out with degrees, but very few of them know much about civics and engagement in politics. Mm -hmm. 
so this is something we need to change. So we have never in all of human history, uh, in your mind, uh, achieved an actualized democracy, but you're hopeful. <laughs> I am, but, but I am you extremely hopeful. hopeful. <laughs> um, but we have to keep in mind that this is a long-term process. Remember Cl that... Clearly. Uh, we, yes. I mean, we've got, since the beginning of human history so far. Yes, uh, yeah. yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I always uh, remind people that 2,500 years ago in Athens, free men, free men, not women, not slaves, had the vote. Hmm. About 2,300 years later, the American Revolution brought a great constitution. And what did it give? It gave the vote to free men, not women, not slaves. Hmm. It took over 2,000 years to repeat what Athens had done. And it took another several hundred years to give the vote to women. In 2000, uh, yes, 1920. 1920, yes. And then, even now, in the United States, voter suppression is so strong that even in the most important elections, barely 50% of the people vote. Voter suppression prevents many minorities and poor people in particular from voting. So, no, we have not reached an actualized or ideal democracy. But I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful, particularly because young people are so promising. I suspected that I would uh, really enjoy this conversation, and I certainly have. I've got to thank you so much, and I hope this is the beginning of, uh, I, ho I hope you'll come back because we just scratched the surface, but it is just so uh, I, I um, enlightening and and uh, engaging listening to you. I could do it for hours. Uh, a final thank you so much. A, a final question, which I, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention how to become a tyrant because it seems to be uh, on the tip of everyone's tongue. What's it like to be a, a Netflix star? Um, well, uh, I, I, thank you very much. Uh, I'm not a Netflix star, but. Um, I enjoyed participating in that program, and I, I, I think they did a very good job of making it accessible. Uh, I wish they had connected it more to contemporary events in the last 10 years particularly, uh, but I hope they will do that in the future. Dr. Fatali Mogadam, I have very much enjoyed this. I thank you again. Thank you. It's my honor and pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Khodafis. This is the best of Rook. Episode 283 of Rook. You know, there are various occasions on this program where stories are told and laughter ensues. And sometimes it has to do with the idiosyncratic practices of Iranians here in the diaspora. This is one of those moments from a couple of years ago with Reza Kian and Shaya in the Rook studio where we discuss the strange allure 
of repeated visits to Niagara Falls here in Ontario, Canada for immigrants. And it seems in particular Iranians, this was after both Keon and Shia went to the popular tourist destination for a weekend. On the best of Rook, this is the Rook funny Persians at Niagara. I know Shia went on a little uh, trip this weekend. Oh. And yeah, now the reason I now I haven't asked them anything about it because we traded messages, you know. And so I uh, so I left them a message yesterday. I was like, uh, hey, man, just check it in. I hope you're doing OK. You know, see, I, you know, I'm like an older brother. right? I'm, I got to see if Shy is OK. You're the older brother. Sometimes I, I wonder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, you know, I got to make sure Shy. Well, no, he looks he like looks the like older a brother. But, yeah, he's like my, my grandfather. Yeah. yeah, no. But, you know, I got to make sure he's all right. He's not in a sewer somewhere Aww. or something. You know, <laughs> so I uh, so I say, hey, uh, uh, how's it going there, uh, Shia? And then, and then he left me a message. It was like, <laughs> first of all, Shia, when, I don't, have you ever gotten a message from Shia? I haven't yeah. had the pleasure. It, it's no. like it's coming from, uh, you know, first, it feels like he's he's somewhere on the other side of the world in another era. Like it's so far away. It's <laughs> There's always like a crackly, you know, kind of weird, and he, like white noise. And, you know, it's never, it's never clear. And he goes, uh, Hello, Aziz. Um, uh, Aziz, um, I have made it to Niagara. Wow. Yeah. You were in Niagara. So, uh, I was there too. Well, hang on a second. So, okay. Let me explain this. Well, that's great. I, I know you were there too, okay. but you were in a fucking, yeah, with a yeah. McLaren <laughs> and a, you know, I know what, wherever, whatever Shy was doing, he wouldn't have seen you because you're in some penthouse something or other. I, you know, Shy was probably at the bus station. <laughs> so, okay. So, like, let me explain this to people who now I, I know nothing other than I, I have made it to, to Niagara, right? <laughs> so I. Uh, <laughs> so, so the greatest thing is, I mean, let me explain to anybody who hasn't, you know, didn't grow up in in the vicinity of where we've grown up. Niagara Falls is kind of, uh, you know, it's the obligatory Southern Ontario, Canada, Upper New York State, America, tourist attraction known for these amazing natural wonders of these uh, waterfalls and for cheesy hotels and mm -hmm. heart-shaped jacuzzis, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and it's kind of like a rite of passage, like, you know, inevitably as we were growing up here if mm -hmm. the Persian relatives visited or somebody the first thing we are going to Niagara Falls dad <laughs> we always go to we are going to you know <laughs> yeah. a Skyline Tower you know like Persians a, love it too yeah, they now, love why, is it, why do Persians I don't know love, it's something my father my loved dad, it I know yeah, yeah. obsessed he was I mean it was always the first thing like yeah. we are going to Niagara Falls you know? <laughs> and we always did the same thing the same walk yeah. and we had to go up the tower right. and you know so anyway so but the greatest thing about, Sh so Shia, I guess, you went to Niagara Falls, right? Yes. That's what you were talking about. But the greatest thing was with the crackly line and with the way Shia, <laughs> it was like he discovered Niagara Falls. Like, <laughs> like Shia's like an explorer, you know, with the stick he walks with, you know. Like, I have made it to Niagara. You know, it's like, it exists. Oh, you say Niagara, what, what is that? Like, it's like, you know, Shia, the discoverer, the explorer, right? So Shia, what what was this trip to Niagara Falls? Yeah, and and by the way, you've been here for a couple of years in Canada, yes, but you've never been. Huh? That's oh. true. Yeah, because of that, actually, I was excited. So it was good. Uh, generally, I'm not a fan of like touristy yeah. sites and things like that. But but it is a brown people thing. 
Like, I mean, you can't, you can't. Yeah. And so I have to ask, maybe I'll ask Rhea Hakalkiana. Yeah. But I mean, like, why people don't waste their time with, no, let's go to Niagara Falls. A you lot know? of immigrants love it's it. All, it's, all, it's, all, it's all immigrants. What's it's like, we are going thing? to Niagara Falls. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, why do we, well, you know. And then, Bebin Chikach. Hodachikor Kardi. You know, it's something to do with Tabiat. Like, we lo- Persians love, like, nature and wonders. wonders of, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so. hotels yeah. and, like, yeah. overpriced. Cheesy <laughs> restaurants. Suites and, yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry, Shia. Yes, so please, yes. So, uh, I love it actually. It satisfied my expectations. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I won't go there ever uh, <laughs> <laughs> again. <laughs> no, you it, it. It's enough for what, what, one did, what is it that you did at uh, Niagara Falls? You went and you uh, were you with friends or? Yes, you, I went there. You didn't I, go by yourself. No, no, no. With no. a stick. <laughs> so I was hoping you had walked there or something like no. Gandhi when you made the. <laughs> okay, so you went and. So uh, I, yeah. no, I went there and like I walk um, and to the Niagara Falls and. I yeah. saw it and this is it. <laughs> <laughs> I came back. I did back. nothing special. Actually. Uh, it really cool. is. I mean, it's it's it's, it's all inspiring, right? Mm. Uh, for at least the first three minutes, like you're just like, <laughs> oh my god, this is fucking. Look at yeah. this. Look at this. How did yeah. this? And yeah. and it never stops the water. And then yes. after about four minutes, you're like, hmm, you guys hungry? <laughs> you guys want to go for a yeah. you know some pasta? Yeah. It, it's worth the trip if you want to go and gamble a little bit because. There's oh, a casino that's right. there. Well, now there's a casino. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. Thing. So, because uh, I went there like two weeks ago, actually. Of, with of my course, he. So Reza, right? <laughs> His version of Niagara Falls is the gambling. <laughs> the gamble. yeah. Yeah, that's a casino. Yeah. He doesn't even see the pool, the, the water. <laughs> no, he's never I actually seen it. didn't. We didn't go to Niagara Falls. <laughs> <laughs> I just went to the casino when we went and ate and oh uh, God. made the gas money back <laughs> and <then laughs> came back. That's oh, you won at the casino? Yeah, I did. Wow, I won. I won. Not a lot, but so. What did okay. Shai? You went and saw the the what? How did it? It satisfied your expectations. There is two falls, you know. Yes. One, one is smaller. The one is. And you know what they? The, the, there's one is the American Falls and yes. one's the Canadian Falls. Yeah, the right? Canadian Falls. It's really huge. You know, yes, it's a all, horseshoe. Yes, right. Yes, it's yes. called the Horseshoe Falls. Yes, yeah. yes. And uh, drilled into us as kids, you know. <laughs> I didn't know. It was this is it. the Canadian <laughs> Falls. Like we were always very yeah. proud because our falls are bigger than. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the only thing that Canadians have that's more impressive <laughs> that's than the Americans. The you know? Who drilled that in your head? Because that sounded like the impression you made of your dad. This is the. That is, that is. It was my dad. Oh, it was yeah, your yeah, dad. It was my dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are going to Niagara Falls. Oh. Oh, Canadian yeah. side. <laughs> and but then it would probably be something like uh, somehow he would work it around to why I'm inadequate. Like it would be like a. Uh, the falls, they are great. You could do better. You know, like, like, You're not. Why you didn't get an A? You know, like, <laughs> How many times did you go there? Like a hundred times. Oh, really? Uh, I'm telling you, it was the family trip. Yes. Constantly, you know, it's like other families would go skiing or they would go, you know, to, to some cottage in the summer. Where we would go to Niagara Falls. So that what, was when, when was yeah. the last time you went there? Uh, Probably when I was going driving, just driving down to New York, I went through yeah. that. You drive uh-huh. past there, but to visit Niagara Falls, to visit Niagara it's Falls. probably it's been a while. You know, if you've uh, yeah. never been on, uh, n- never done Made of the Mist, have you done? Did oh you do yeah, that? that's worth the, the Made of the Mist. You know what that yeah. is, Shay? Yes, the, the, yeah, yeah, the You go on the boat and then you go close to the falls. Yeah, you wear the you know the the yellow raincoat, the iconic yellow raincoat. I would have liked to see Shy in that actually. Shy with a stick. I mean. 
there's like, I kind of wish I did discover Niagara Falls, you know? <laughs> I have found, I made it to Niagara. First of all, who says I have made it to Niagara? You know, it's like, yeah, it's not like, hey man, I'm at Niagara Falls. I have made it to Niagara. <laughs> like, so that, so, uh, you know, Shia, that's Shia's experience. He went and saw, probably had a hot dog or something. So Keon, now, how, like, here's what I want to know. How did you get to Niagara Falls? In what vehicle? In this new McLaren convertible. <laughs> At the hefty price of, what is it, half a million dollars? Yeah. I mean, anyway. Yeah. Wait a minute. Did you have the top down from Toronto to Not Niagara Falls? Not the whole time. No, he I wanted to say. have it down. I said, listen, man, oh I didn't do my hair for two hours just to ruin it. By the so. way, you're really dressed up today. I, you know, once in a while, I'm not Roya <laughs> Yeah, I thought I'd put on my green dress. No, but like you're super dressed. You got yeah, heels. You know what it is? You're used to me during COVID months, like where oh. it was like sweatpants, miserable. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. I've known you yeah. for a long time. And you that's are, right. you do are, once you're, you're, you're notoriously known for, like, I remember we, um, when the Raptors, so it was a basketball, oh. we were, a, a few of us were getting together to watch the Raptors when they were in that, that historic yeah, season. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Just like three years ago or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and everybody was worried that Keon was going to turn up at the pub with like full on ball <laughs> gown and, you know. And <laughs> but you didn't, yeah. to be fair. No, you I came did not. In your gym clothes. I wore jeans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gym clothes, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I'm going back to pre-COVID Keon, you know. Oh, okay. Like back, nice. Starting to get back in Elegant. shape. And uh, yeah, not horribly disgusting. And yeah, that's the look. Never, never, Keon. You're never. I have made it to <laughs> Niagara. <laughs> but no, so I was, what, 20 minutes away from the falls uh, where they have beautiful vineyards in uh, Niagara. Yes, they do. Yeah. Niagara, you went to Niagara on the lake. Niagara on the lake, the lake yeah. yeah. That's been? where the rich people go. Yeah. <laughs> did you go wine tasting? Yeah. I did, yeah. Oh, it was lovely. Of course. <laughs> I brought my food, by the way. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Shia, Shia packed a, packed oh a lunch. God. <laughs> God, you guys oh my god! We should. Have, it would be so good if we had a split screen. Oh, Shia so with the like, he's un, he's so unwrapping good. some cellophane with like a, oh a sandwich from three days ago. <laughs> Keon is eating a four thousand dollar steak. Yeah, yeah. You guys are breaking my heart. Uh, would you like more caviar? <laughs> mm, we'll take it in the McLaren. <laughs> Shy drop. There's just shy drops his sandwich into the falls. Oh, oh, he has nothing to eat. You know? okay. God. Uh, the contrast well, is great. Oh. Yeah, we went. Um, we went wine tasting. I mean, what do you guys do when you go to Niagara Falls? We fucking eat a sandwich. That's what we do. There you go. Persians at Niagara Falls, the Rook funny from a couple of years ago. This is full time for the best of Rook for today. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, for all things Rook related, rookmedia.com, R-O-Q-E media.com is our website. Thanks so much to the amazing team who put this show together. Talented Anahita, Smart Pega, Bearded Omid, Savvy Roham, Super Parisa, Methodical Kaveh, and sound person Louise thank you to you guys out there for supporting us thank you for sharing our content if you like what you hear tell people about it please subscribe uh, on any or all of our platforms if you haven't done so already you can find the show on Instagram at Rook Media find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi and in the meantime Mizunbashi Bashi.